of the five wisdom literature books, no wonder we lack wisdom. We are here in this book to benefit from the Bible's wisdom literature, so please follow along in Ecclesiastes 9 after I pray for us. Spirit of God, open the eyes of our hearts, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes 9, 13 through 10, 20. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city, yet no, no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in the low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies his words, though no man knows what is, what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladness li gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even, your, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. Thank you, Amy. You have a compass by which you navigate life. You have a compass by which you navigate your life every day. Your compass is the belief system or value system you use to discern what to do in various circumstances you face. For instance, 
I heard Tim Keller mention how a woman named Sheila was asked what her religion is. She said, quote, my religion is to listen to a voice in my heart as to what's right and wrong. That's her compass. Did you hear it? My religion is to listen to a voice in my heart as to what's right and wrong. She said, I have a name for my religion. It's Sheilaism. Now, there's a religion like it that goes by the name Tabism. And you have a religion like it. It goes by your name sometimes. That's our default compass in our culture today, especially. The Bible's wisdom literature provides a different compass, one called wisdom. A compass called wisdom, skill for living in God's word. Now, I'm going to assume something here. I'm going to assume that you'll agree with me that the compass of tabism is not as good as the compass of wisdom from God's word. Can I, is that a safe assumption? Would you, would you assume with me, would you agree with me, yeah, you know what, the tabism compass, not as good as the wisdom compass from scripture. Okay, good. The wisdom compass is probably better than listening to a voice in your heart. But here's the problem. How do you know if you're using this wisdom compass correctly? How do you know that? How do you know if this compass of wisdom is functioning for you rightly? How do you know if it's calibrated correctly? The preacher here in this passage, he's He's using that wisdom compass, but sometimes it seems broken to him. He sees exceptions. He sees problems at times with this compass. The preacher has what Derek Kidner calls a yes-but approach to typical traditional wisdom. A yes-but approach to wisdom. Yes, he says, wisdom is valuable, but wisdom is vulnerable in ways. And that's, I think, the main takeaway from this passage. It's kind of like a shotgun of proverbial sayings, but if I could give you a handle for the whole thing, it would be, yes, wisdom is valuable, but wisdom is also vulnerable. That's the overarching principle I want to take away. Yes, wisdom is valuable, but wisdom is also vulnerable. That's the preacher's struggle here, and God wants us to learn from that struggle. So what I want to do is take both halves of that statement, yes, valuable, but vulnerable, and then step back and ask, how do we apply this? So that's where we're going. Buckle your seatbelts. It's a big passage. We're not going to look at everything because we don't have time. But let's first see how wisdom is valuable here. So first, yes, he says, yes, wisdom is valuable. Just a few examples. Chapter 10, verse 10. Chapter 10, verse 10. If the iron is blunt, implying a, a, like a, an axe head, an iron axe head. If the iron is blunt 
and one does not sharpen the edge. He must use more strength, but wisdom helps one succeed. So if your axe is dull, you're going to need more effort. Wisdom says, stop, sharpen your axe, then you'll succeed. So here's skill for living. Wisdom brings success. Another example, chapter 10, verse 12. Chapter 10, verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. So, wise words win favor, bring benefit, good stuff. The lips of a fool, the words of a fool consume him, engulf him. The fool suffers because of his foolish talk. So, don't be a fool in what you say or what you post online or that comment on social media that will hurt you. That's skill for living, right? That's the compass. Skill for living. Good wisdom. Third example, chapter 10, verse 18. Keep your Bible open, please. Chapter 10, verse 18. Through sloth, laziness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. These homes had flat roofs typically. So through sloth, through laziness, you would neglect to maintain your roof, and what would happen? It would start to sink in, and the house would leak. So wisdom is saying, skill for living is saying, maintain your house, maintain your car, or you'll regret it. A helpful compass. Typical wisdom teaching. But notice this traditional wisdom teaching, like you'd find in the book of Proverbs, it turns on what is called the deed-consequence relationship. We've talked about this once before, but I think it's helpful to see this. The deed-consequence relationship. Use wisdom, sharpen the saw, you'll have success. Use wise words, you'll get favor. Say foolish things, you're going to hurt yourself. Be lazy, your house is going to leak. Deed-consequence. Wise decisions, good results. Bad decisions, bad results. That's how things often work in the economy of God, in how things and how he has set up the world. But the preacher also sees exceptions. And that's the unique value of this passage. His struggle is, at points, the strict deed-consequence relationship it doesn't quite always work out. So he says a number of times, yes, wisdom is valuable. But, but secondly, wisdom is also vulnerable. Secondly, wisdom is also vulnerable. Catch this with me, please. A few ways we see this strand through this passage. First, wisdom is vulnerable to not being listened to, being despised, it says. Wisdom is vulnerable to not being listened to. Look back to chapter 9, where the section begins, verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 13. The preacher says, I have also seen, observed, this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. So, remember, here's how he's operating in this book. 
by what he sees, by what he observes in this life under the sun, in the here and now. And notice what he sees. He tells us a story. Verse 14. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it and built great siege works against it. Small city, few citizens, great powerful king comes, siege works being built. That's terrifying. They're going to storm the walls. You're in trouble. Verse 15. But there was found in it a poor wise man. A wise man. And he, by his wisdom, by his wisdom, delivered the city. So it appears wisdom saved the day. Yet, it says, yet no one remembered that poor man. Or perhaps better, no one paid attention. No one paid attention. Because the punchline is in verse 16. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. His wisdom is better than power, yes, but it can be despised, it can be rejected. Wisdom has this Achilles heel. You only benefit to the degree that you listen to it. You only benefit to the degree you listen to it. Wisdom is vulnerable in our lives in that way. How do you respond, friends, how do you respond when a spouse or parent or friend says, hey, can I, can I share something with you? Can I ask you what you said there or did there? How, how do you respond to that? Me, my, my inner porcupine is immediately alert. My inner defense attorney is activated. What? I had to ask Sung's forgiveness this week. Because she had kindly, lovingly informed me that my radio was too loud. I turned it down, but I didn't like doing so. I was inwardly offended. I didn't want to listen to her wisdom. I'm not saying we have to agree with everything people bring to us. They're not infallible. But we must consider what's being said if we're to be wise, as didn't happen in verse 16. Friends, is, is someone bringing wisdom to you and you're tuning it out? Is that happening in your life? Your spouse has been saying something to you. Your parent, your teenager has been saying something to you. A friend's been saying something to you. Bringing a concern and you're refusing to hear it. If so, you are, you are making wisdom vulnerable in that way. You know, it'd be good to ask someone this question. How well... How well do I listen to the wisdom of others? To ask a friend, a spouse, teenagers, kids, ask your parent. Parents, ask your teenager. How well do I listen? Wisdom is vulnerable to not being listened to, being despised in verse 16. 
Secondly, we find here wisdom is vulnerable to folly and sin. Secondly, wisdom is vulnerable to folly and sin. Look now to verse 18. He sort of builds on this theme in verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, chapter 9, verse 18. But one sinner destroys much good. See the contrast? Wisdom better than weapons of war, but just one sinner negates all that wisdom built. Same idea in the curious saying of chapter 10, verse 1. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Same idea. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs, outweighs wisdom and honor. Be a great memory verse, wouldn't it? The perfumer's ointment smells good. It's got some sweet fragrance. But if a few flies plunge into it, start to decompose, they stink, they smell, gives off a stench, and it ruins the nice aroma. The point? Wisdom is so easily undone by a little folly, a little sin. Similar idea in verse 5. Look at verse 5, chapter 10, verse 5. I want you to see this theme. Chapter 10, verse 5. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error, an error proceeding from the ruler. Now, the word error there is used elsewhere, like in Leviticus, of an unintentional sin, some sin of negligence. So from a leader's sinful negligence, notice the result in verse 6. Folly. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now, his point is not to say that the rich are somehow inherently better. His point is to say that one leader's, uh, one leader's sin of negligence turns the world upside down, creates chaos. A fool is set in high places. Wisdom is undone. You see the theme. Wisdom is vulnerable here to a little folly, one sin. Not, not long ago, I, I read that the leader of an international group of churches, well-known group of churches, was removed from his position of leadership primarily for what he did on one night. As the story goes, he was drinking too much, and he says was on medication. And he was in a woman's hotel room that was not his wife for 45 minutes, the two of them. He says nothing happens, happened rather. But the appearance alone is obviously highly problematic and they rightly removed him from leadership. So catch this. A lifetime of ministry. And one night you throw it all away and hurt countless other people. That's what the preacher's getting at. And none of us are immune, friends. One rash word. 
one angry tirade, one fleeting illicit pleasure, and wisdom is overturned. And the results can be, can be devastating. I want to ask you, is wisdom vulnerable in your life like that right now? Are you flirting with some, some sin, tempted to indulge some sin because you've lost sight of the potential consequences? You've lost sight of the damage and the pain that one moment of folly would do. Are you sobered by what you see here or are you blowing this off? Wisdom in our lives is vulnerable. This compass is vulnerable to folly and sin. One more way here, one more way that wisdom is vulnerable. Wisdom is vulnerable to events outside your control. Suffering outside your control. Wisdom is vulnerable to events or suffering outside your control. Next, the preacher gives four illustrations of people just doing their jobs, going about their business, and bad things happen. Suffering comes. Chapter 10, verse 8. Chapter 10, verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Now, some see criminal activity here, but I don't think so. I'm not convinced because of the context. I think it's simply saying, you're digging a ditch like you have to, and man, it caves in on you. You're tearing down a wall. No one saw the snake and it bit you. Because you see the same thing in verse 9. Verse 9, he who quarries stones is hurt by them. Accidents happen. He who splits logs is endangered by them. You're quarrying the stones. You're doing your job. But there are dangers. Splitting those logs, yeah, it's good to have a sharp saw. But you might still get hurt by those logs. It's nobody's fault here. Four illustrations to say it's nobody's fault, no one to blame, but bad things still happen. In other words, that deed-consequence relationship, you can't assume that. It's not automatic. You can be as wise as possible, and suffering still comes your way. Even for an entire land. Look at chapter 10, verse 16. Chapter 10, verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes, your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. He's saying it's great if you have a noble king, but you might get the king in verse 16 who's a child or childish. And remember, you don't elect your king here. You just get what you get. And if your king is a child or a childish one, and then your leaders are drunk, and the whole place has got problems. You're just a citizen. It's not your fault. But the whole land suffers. You see the preacher's struggle? Oh, he's pro-wisdom. He's pro-wisdom. He says wisdom is valuable, but he sees problems. It can be despised. It can be rejected, not listened to. It can be so easily undone by a little folly or sin. 
and it can be negated by events outside your control. So yes, wisdom is valuable, but wisdom is also vulnerable. That's the overarching principle of this shotgun of proverbial sayings. Valuable, vulnerable. That's your wisdom compass. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? How can we, how can we check to make sure we're using the wisdom compass correctly? How can we make sure we are calibrating this compass accurately? Well, I want you to notice two important reference points. Stick with me now. I want you first to remember where the preacher started this section. Chapter 9, verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 13. I have also seen, observed this example of wisdom under the sun. And he says that throughout the book, doesn't he? I'm going by what I see. I'm going by what I observe. That's part of why he struggles so much. Confusion and consternation because what he sees and observes is his final court of appeals for what's real and true. So, to use this compass rightly, we need revelation, not just observation. We need revelation not just observation. We need God's Word. And we need all of God's Word. So, because wisdom is valuable and vulnerable, you need the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Recall how Derek Kidner likens the books of Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, these staples of wisdom literature, he likens those three books to three different houses. Proverbs is the grand prosperous house, showing you how things often work in God's economy. Job is the wrecked house. Suffering has come to that house. Ecclesiastes is the, the decaying house. Once beautiful and still beautiful in ways, but it's also broken down and dilapidated. It's the struggle of wisdom in a fallen world. To use this compass rightly, this compass of wisdom, you need all three houses. That's my point. You need all three houses. Let me il illustrate for you. Let's say we're thinking about suffering, and you turn to the book of Proverbs, and you use a pretty strict deed-consequence relationship. Do bad things, bad stuff happens. When suffering comes, what do you conclude? I did something bad, or you did something bad to cause this suffering, right? That's what you conclude. I deserve this. But Ecclesiastes says, yes, but there are exceptions. You dig a pit, and you accidentally fall in it. It's nobody's fault. You tear down a wall, and you didn't see the snake, and it, it still bit you. You're quarrying stones, and sometimes you get injured. You split logs. Sometimes you get hurt. It's no one's fault. 
You see how we need to read these books in tension together? This is something I want you to take away from this time in Ecclesiastes. To read each of these books together. To understand Proverbs with Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiastes with Proverbs. And then, on suffering, to also turn to the book of Job. To also turn to Job. Job's miserable comforters have that basic deed-consequence relationship, right? Their basic message is, Job, you're suffering, clearly you sinned, fess up. Fess up, Job. You got chapter on chapter of fess up. But the beginning of the book of Job shows us that Job is suffering. Why? Because he's righteous. You need to read that book in there. Job is suffering because God commends him. And God is dealing with a cosmic evil in the devil. At the end of the book, God says, Job, pray for your friends. Those guys are in trouble with me. And not only that, Job, Job never gets an answer to his suffering. God just gives him glimpses of his own majesty. In addition, we should turn to passages like Romans 5, Romans 8, James 1, 1 Peter 1 to get even more wisdom for things like suffering. My point is simply to use this compass called wisdom. You can't isolate certain verses, stick them on your refrigerator, and absolutize them. When it comes to the compass of wisdom, you need the whole counsel of God. I just stuck that in there because it's my last sermon in Ecclesiastes. That's a takeaway I want you to have. There's something else we need here for this compass. Another important verse is in chapter 10, verse 2. Chapter 10, verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now that's not right and left politically. Don't read Republican and Democrat into that verse, okay? That's right and left morally. He's saying moral direction comes from the heart, from within, from your thoughts, desires, affections, the steering wheel of your life. Now that might sound like Sheilaism. That might sound like Tabism, but it's not because repeatedly through Ecclesiastes, what's he been telling us? Fear God. Fear God. Fear God. Have a heart that holds God in awe and reverence. So, because wisdom is valuable and vulnerable, have a heart that fears God. Have a heart that fears God. That's wisdom in a nutshell. That's how to use this compass. Now, Dan's going to teach on this more in a few weeks, but if I could sum up a heart of fearing the Lord, I think it would be having your heart governed by the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be regarded as holy. May you be revered 
in light of your person and character. That's not a hide-in-the-corner kind of fear. That's a child's reverent fear toward their loving father. Father, may you be rightly honored in my life. That would have protected that pastor I mentioned. That would protect you and me. A heart that fears God will help keep us from despising wisdom, rejecting wisdom, refusing to listen to wisdom. A heart that fears God will help us turn away from the folly and sin that could overturn wisdom. I pray this petition for my marriage regularly and other things. Father, may your name be regarded by me as holy in my marriage. Let me see that my marriage is about your honor, your fame, your glory. And then I'm fearing the Lord in my heart and I am protected. Pray that for yourself, friends. Hallowed be your name. So to use this compass rightly, we need the whole counsel of God. We need hearts that fear God. We need one more thing. One more thing. If we're to read Ecclesiastes like we should, we need to read it in context of the entire Bible. In light of all of Scripture, that means we also need the Son of God. We need the Word of God, the fear of God, and we need, thirdly, the Son of God. Friends, because wisdom is valuable and vulnerable, you need the Son of God to be truly wise. Jesus, you might say, is the answer to each of wisdom's vulnerabilities. Wisdom can be despised and rejected by us, but Christ was despised and rejected for you. Wisdom can be undone by sin, but Christ was without sin and fully obeyed in your place. Things happen outside of our control, but Christ is on the throne, ruling over everything. You see, in the New Testament, wisdom appears as well. In the New Testament, wisdom appears as well. Little different sense. But we find there that true wisdom is ultimately a gift of grace. Ultimately a gift of grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And then he goes on to say, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Did you hear that? God made him, his own son, true wisdom for us, wisdom incarnate. And God brings us into Christ, making us truly wise. We who were foolish, we who were going our own way, we who are in so much eternal peril, so much vulnerability with our souls. Wisdom came in the flesh to save you. 
Wisdom came to rescue you that you might be truly wise by grace. Now Christ is your righteousness, the one who never sinned. Now Christ is your sanctification, setting you apart for God. Now Christ is your redemption, setting you free by what he has accomplished. Friends, wisdom is valuable and wisdom is vulnerable in ways in our lives. So hope. Hope in the one who has made wisdom incarnate for you. Let's pray. And if you would, just interact with God for a moment. Take to him whatever the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you about. Maybe some way you've been rejecting wisdom of others, spouse, friend, parent, teen. Maybe some way you are kind of flirting with sin, disregarding consequences. Or maybe ways that you're suffering and that's weighing on you right now. Take it to the Lord. If you've yet to believe on Christ, cry out to him. Wisdom incarnate. Who lived and died and rose to bring you to God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for wisdom literature. Thank you for this compass. Help us to use it wisely. Help us to benefit from the whole counsel of your word. Help us to have hearts that rightly honor and fear you. Hearts that pray Hallowed be your name. And grant us this hope, we ask you. Help us to hope in you, even now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, to feed our faith, to encourage our hearts, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. We are going to remember and rejoice in the one made wisdom incarnate for us. We're going to take communion as a community. So in a moment, we invite you to come down the side aisles, receive the bread, take a cup of wine or juice, take them back to your seat. We'll take the elements together. And as you wait, hope in Christ. Hope in the one who has made wisdom for you, your righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And if you've yet to trust in Christ, we urge you right now to take Christ instead. So when you're ready, please come.